Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's guest is Maura Forbes, who's an executive vice president at Forbes Media, where she's responsible for programming and branding for all the Forbes events worldwide and a very powerful person in media. She runs Forbes Woman, which is dedicated to successful women in business and leadership and runs the Forbes Executive Women's Board. She's here on Bulletproof Radio today to talk about executive leadership and to talk about the mindset of being a high performer. And Bulletproof Radio is all about what what does it take to perform better as a human being? And I go out of my way to interview people who are doing unusual and big things to find out how they think. And then we switch gears and talk with a research scientist who just figured out a new pathway to high performance. Because if you want to be just a geek, uh, that's cool. If you want to be just a leader, that's cool. But if you combine both of those knowledge sets, you get something amazing. And I think when we talk with Maura here, you'll hear something amazing. So Maura, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You are related to your grandfather, uh, Mr. Forbes, who started Forbes in 1917. How did it feel growing up in a family you know, with the Forbes name, like a very recognizable name? And, and how did that turn into a career in the family business? I, you know, as, as you mentioned, uh, Forbes is, is, was started in 1917. We just celebrated our 100th anniversary last year. And it is a different experience when you grow up in a family where your last name is a brand name and you have a very real sense of, of what that brand represents and the opportunity to be a steward of how to build on it in incredible ways and the opportunities and also sometimes the pressures of that. You know, it was the experience I knew. So it seemed very, very normal to me, but it also really shaped, I think, you know, the relationships that I built and how I've navigated my career in terms of feeling this huge sense of responsibility to build on this legacy, but also identify, you know, my own voice uh, and my path to doing things that I feel are important and uh, that are authentic to me, but it definitely is is unique. Did you expect uh, when you were five years old that you're going to grow up and join the family business or did you have (laughs) aspirations to go off and do something else? You know, I, I always like to joke uh, that, that my family was into child labor in the sense that uh, from a very young age, uh, my father and my grandfather always had us uh, out with clients. They always had us talking to people, engaging and building relationships and really on the front line of, of our business. So we always knew um, and always had a, a really fundamental understanding of, of the opportunity to be connected uh, to the Forbes brand and the Forbes business. Uh, I, from a very young age, knew that I wanted to do something in business. I loved media. And I think my parents thought it was a little bit strange for for my seventh birthday. I actually asked for a cash register (laughs) because uh, I wanted to create stores. And I thought, how amazing is it that you can buy and sell things and find a way to make money to do what you want? You know, money sort of at that time was 
you know, it, it gave you the freedom to, to buy what you wanted or, or to have fun. You know, little did I recognize that the things that I sold actually my parents paid for, you know, they were things that I pulled from my house. Um, but I loved business and I loved bringing people together. Uh, and I always love the opportunity to tell stories. So, you know, I always think when you try and figure out where your passions lie, time and time again, you have to go back to your childhood because usually there's sort of breadcrumbs of what sparked your interest, what you gravitated toward that can really you know, help shape and define what gives you energy and where you're going to find the, the greatest sense of fulfillment. Back in 1917, the first episode of Forbes had on the cover of the magazine, Women in Business, which was Kind of unusual for you know, way back in the day there. In fact, that was something that almost wasn't done. Almost wasn't done. Like this was before women were allowed to vote. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. completely different world. It blows my mind. Like there are people alive today who were alive then. And do you think that that your aspirations, your upbringing, came about because your grandfather and, and ostensibly your parents were just more open to the idea of you know, women rising in business, or did you have to sort of overcome the just the inherent stereotypes? that oftentimes happen. I think, I, I think they're happening a lot less today, but you're about my age, I'm guessing. So I know when, when I was a kid, it was still different than it is today. So did you like push against things or was this just that your family was always so like women are always going to be in business. So they wrote about it in their first magazine. Like what's, what's the vibe there? You know, I, it was incredible to look back that in this first issue prominently displayed on the cover was this department that ran throughout, you know, the course of Forbes' history. And as you said, a time where women didn't have the right to vote. But, you know, my my family, you know, and the writers of Forbes always had an acute understanding of, of you know, where are where are the, the interesting dynamics and influencers and people that are going to shape business? And for me personally, I'm one of five girls. So I, I grew up in a family where my father was in in the vast minority. Um, even our dog was was a girl. So he was highly outnumbered. <laughs> you know, the thought of, of being limited by gender never even crossed our minds because our parents, you know, really pushed us to explore the opportunities and passions that we had. But I always gravitated toward conversations and aspects of history related to women because I thought it was such an interesting lens to explore what was going on in culture and business at the time. And it was only really as I began my career and and started to navigate, um, you know, as, as I took on more responsibility that I got to you know, more fully appreciate it and understand that there are unique experiences, some challenges as well as some opportunities when you are a woman. So it's really when I only, you know, when I got into the working world, and I will say this as well, you know, I've spent over a decade of my career focused on really amplifying conversations around women in business and leadership. And, and oftentimes that was somewhat of a liability because people would say, oh, you know, of course, that's, you know, the woman in the family, you know, talking about something that's interested, you know, interesting to her. And especially when we started this platform. So it's extraordinary now to see, you know, well over a decade later, that these conversations are at the forefront of national dialogue, and people are really appreciating um, the impact and opportunities that women have. It's interesting, my my chief operating officer uh, is a woman. And I'm pretty sure about half my executive team uh, is, is women. And I I don't really think twice about it uh, when making a hiring decision because you just want to hire the best people. And my career in Silicon Valley, I've been in an awful lot of meetings where it's just, you know, 10, uh, 10 guys. <laughs> and it seems like those meetings were just always somehow different than when you have a, like a more diverse, just more, more mixed set of perspectives. And it, I think it sort of affects human behavior. And I, I like to just maintain a good balance in, in business decisions. Uh, but 
it, it's it's still the case that women make on average what sixty nine cents uh, per yep. uh, versus what guys get paid. What do you do at Forbes to address that? You know, it's it's always a big challenge because when you're talking about diversity in the workforce, you know, many times I'll talk to business leaders who who don't have the diversity numbers that they would like, and it's not necessarily that they're anti-women um, or that they don't want to do the right thing or they don't want uh, diverse teams, but oftentimes there are these unconscious biases that filter in our in, into our decisions because sometimes we're more comfortable when we're around people who are like us, think like us. It's validating to our own experiences, and some so that creates almost a self-perpetuating challenge with diversity. But I think first and foremost, you have to make it a priority, not because it's you know, a politically correct thing to do or that it's a liability not to have a diverse team. But to your point, when you have people who see things from very different vantage points, you're going to create the best outcomes. You're going to reflect the diversity of your customers. You're also, you know, I always say when, when you build a team or a business, you never want to have people around you who duplicate what you do. You want them to complement your skill sets, to bring in, you know, different types of thinking. And that will have, you know, time and time again, the research has shown it has bottom line results, but you have to make it a priority. And sometimes it requires making more of an effort, thinking outside of the box, doing things differently. But in order to achieve ambitious goals, you have to put in the time um, and you have to invest in in areas you know, such as talent that are, are going to produce the outcomes that you want. You talked about unconscious biases and my path as a, as a biohacker has, and as a, a business leader, it just taught me that that almost every time anything happens, we generate a story in our head about it that's based on our unconscious biases. And, and it feels and looks real because it's how you actually interpret the world around you. Uh, and to to you know, using neuroscience, just realize two people can look at the same thing and see something very, very different. And neither of them is necessarily wrong. In fact, the odds of both of them seeing exactly the same is, is pretty low. I want to know how you, as a leader in business, how do you know... Or how do you detect or, or correct for your own unconscious biases? How do you spot them? Well, I think I think that's to your point. That's that's a blind spot for a lot of people. And I always think about it. You know, this challenge. You know, you think of a fire. When a fire happens, to your point, people see it in very different ways. A firefighter sees it as their job. I see it as a crisis, an emergency, and then you know, an arson sees sees it as you know their field day. And so everyone has. A different way of seeing the very, you know, the very same same things. So it's hard to really understand where your blind spots are. But I think the more that you surround yourself and push yourself to have people who are so fundamentally different from you, or, or you know, I, I always want people to sort of come out of situation and 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 bring very very different vantage points because then it starts to test me um, in terms of of how I react and how I think. And it also, I think, you really need to learn to listen. And I think sometimes we're a bit of living through a listening vacuum in this country where there's so much noise, there's so much conversation, and people have very strong opinions. And I think, you know, great leaders and and in order to drive change today, you have to step back, you have to, to listen, you have to understand people's points of view, synthesize it, because if you want people to act and if you want to, you know, have influence um, and drive change, you have to understand their vantage points. And that doesn't come when you're the loudest voice in a room. So that's sort of one small thing that that I always check myself is that the moment I feel like I'm about to talk and weigh in, I I actively have to say take a step back and let everyone bring, you know, bring their thoughts to the table first because it keeps me grounded and also keeps me, you know, focused on really convening 
convening all the different viewpoints that we've brought together. Your strategy there, at least at work, is to uh, bring in a bunch of different opinions and sort of listen to all of them and see how they compare to yours and then draw a, a map of, of you know what the situation really is, whereas to you it looks like a fire, to someone else it, you know, it looks like something very different. But I think it's learning to take that pause in your life um, because, you know, we're so quick to react. Uh, oftentimes, we're so quick to have an opinion. Uh, you know, you never want to have sort of silence in a room. And so I think you, you, you have to be conscious of taking that moment and sort of taking yourself out of the conversation. And, you know, when you're in a meeting or in a conversation, it's, you know, you're, you're in that moment, it's face to face, and you literally have to just step back and go from that 40,000 foot vantage point and try assess the situation because it's, it's just going to empower you to understand things that you didn't. And it's also going to empower you not to be shackled by your own perceptions or your own quick judgments that you're going to make. How do you do it when you're not at work? I mean, you, you mentioned uh, before we started recording, you have uh, two young kids, and how do you know at, at home <laughs> that you're not dealing with your unconscious biases? Because this is something that limits everyone's performance, no matter where they are in life, right? Like, like what, how do you have a mirror there? I think it's really hard to have a mirror there because, and I think it speaks to the fact that it's hard to have a mirror anywhere. Uh, you know, especially I feel like if you have a commitment to your career and your family and different obligations in your life, you know, at the end of the day, if everybody's alive, you know, if, if there hasn't been a major crisis, you know, you feel like the day has, has gone okay. It's, it's block, you know, it's block and tackle. And so, you know, you can get really caught up in this speed of just this you know, this pace um, of life that just propels you forward and that doesn't allow you to think. So for me, I always find pauses. I always, if I, if I feel like I'm getting swept up in, in the moment and it's just too much, I literally have to hit reset and pause. And that can be stepping away for 60 seconds, you know, uh, at home, at, at work, you know, every day I try and take moments throughout the day to just have three minutes of space in my head and you have to be very conscious of it. I walk out of the room, you know, with my kids, sometimes it's running into the kitchen, um, you know, just, just, just trying to, to get away. But when you can take that moment to pause and recharge, it's, it's, it levels you and it allows you to think versus always reacting on emotion. You're a, you're a pretty busy executive and you know, so am I. And taking three minutes to think is sometimes hard when you're going from one conference room to another or get home. I'm going to get my three minutes, but uh, you know, mommy, mommy, look at this happens Mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, What happens to you when you don't get enough of those pauses for reflection? If I don't get enough of those pauses, I literally, you know, I feel it in my brain. I feel overwhelmed and exhausted and it's just too much. And, you know, I have this thing where if I have a feeling that I want to crawl into a hole and hide, I know that I've pushed myself to my limit and it's unproductive. I don't make good decisions. I'm exhausted. I react and it's unproductive. So, you know, sometimes we feel like we don't have the time to take three minutes, but if something's a priority in your life and you learn to hardwire it and habitualize it, you can carve out three minutes, maybe not, you know, every day or every moment that you want to, but you can practice it and habitualize it into your routine. So when you know you're getting pressed and you know it's unproductive, right? It's diminishing returns to that point. You need to hit the reset button. Sheryl Sandberg wrote Lean In. And then uh, a couple of years later, uh, when she has some tragedy in her life, sort of uh, reassessed the situation. And I was just interviewing uh, Laura Logan from 60 Minutes you know, a war correspondent. And she's like, now I have two kids and like, oh my God, I had no idea. Like I, I was telling women, you know, you, you can have it all, but I was doing it from the perspective of not 
caring for the, for a family. What's your take on it now that you've gone from being an executive without kids to an executive with two young kids? What changed for you? I think what changed is just how I prioritized different aspects of my life. And I think, you know, women get asked, can you have it all at the same time? Women and men can never have it all, right? Like you can never exactly. have it all in your life and you can never have it all at the same time. But, you know, traditionally, culturally, you know, and some people would say biologically, you know, women continue to be the primary caregivers of their children. You know, you look at sort of the statistics around, oh, yeah. you know, the household work, the caring of the kids. And, and that's people will say, does your husband do a lot of work at home? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, he's he's a great dad. He he chips in here, you know, as if it's some fantastic thing that they spend an extra 20 minutes doing the laundry, you know, when you're doing it six hours a week. So so it, it does feel like, you know, this huge sense of responsibility, but it comes back to priorities. Anything in your life, you know, if you prioritize it um, and really make sure to the best that you can, it's never going to be perfect, that you try and align your time with those those priorities you're not going to, it's never going to be perfect, but you're going to get, for me, I get to a better outcome. So, and I also have, you know, really dropped the guilt about the things that I don't do in my life. And that's another thing that I think women struggle with is that we feel all these competing pressures to be great at work, greater kids, be, you know, huge contributors to our community, be fantastic friends and family. And you just have to do the best that you can and something has to give. So you really need to be conscious about how you use your time and your energy. You need to drop the guilt because it's unproductive, it's exhausting, and nobody wins. Um, and the other thing I learned about being, you know, now that, that I'm a parent is that everything is a phase. The good phases are a phase and the bad phases are a phase. And right now I'm at a point in my career where I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old you know, it's a really demanding time in their lives. It's a lot of black and block and tackling. It's very physical, but it's a moment in their lives. So it may mean right now I need to reshift and recalibrate how I do things. I may, may need to be more creative about how I get things done, but it is a moment in time. And, you know, when the next phase hits, I'll, I'll readjust and recalibrate that. Recently, uh, Naomi Whittle, uh, who's been an entrepreneur for a long time and was a former CEO of Twin Lab, a big uh, supplement company, um, she talked about how when she was a young woman entrepreneur, and she was about 23, she hired a nanny, but she didn't have kids. She had a nanny to take care of her so she could take care of her, her company, which really made me laugh. And, and it actually inspired a bunch of other people, both men and women, um, who I've just run into since then saying, I never thought of that, but like, I need someone to take care of me, regardless of if I have kids, because I have a really demanding career. And I see a lot of, of guilt, especially amongst my women entrepreneur friends, where they're saying, you know, I, I still want to, you know, vacuum the house and do the dishes and do the laundry and all this, but I'm working on building this company and I have you know, my young kids at home, or even I don't have young kids at home, but there's like an inherent resistance to allowing someone to, to maybe take care of you when you're like, I don't know how to take care of my career and my family. Do you feel that? You know, I, I, I sometimes feel that because you know, by, by giving that to someone else, it, it means that you're not capable of doing it, or at least in your head, you think you're not capable of doing it. And, and that sometimes is a conflict with your identity as well, because, you know, you, you, you think about all aspects of your life and, and, you know, you want to be great at this, you know, in your career, you know, at home and asking for help sometimes is really hard. So raise your hand and say it's too much. Sometimes feel like, feels like a moment of defeat, but, you know, you have to recalibrate your thinking because, you know, in order to, to, to channel your energy effectively and accomplish the things that you want to accomplish, you have to let things, some things go just because you can do it 
doesn't mean you have to do it. Um, and so if someone else can take something else off your plate, uh, let them take it off your plate. Um, if, if it's not something you love to do, if it's not something that adds tremendous value to your life, if it's something that you can outsource, then do it because that allows you more time, more flexibility, more freedom to do the things that are ultimately going to have the greatest impact on your life. But you have to let that go. It's not a sign of weakness. And this is something actually my husband says a lot to me because when I struggle with it, he'll say, it doesn't make you a bad mother or a bad wife or a bad woman. If if you want someone to, to help you know, with the housework, you know, why would you want to spend an hour of your week if you have the opportunity not to, to outsource something when you can use that time in ways that add more value to your life. So you have to let go of the guilt, um, ask for help. And I, you know, I sometimes say, I would love, you know, a wife from the 1950s. I would love a wife, (laughs) you know, that sort of traditional role from, you know, leave it to beaver where, you know, you come home from work and a meal is cooked, your clothes are clean, the house is spotless. You know, the kids have been, you know, taking a bath in, yeah. in, in their pajamas and, you know, you just get to put them, you know, they're, they're in their angelic mode, but the life doesn't work <laughs> like that. So, so what can you do to find those things that, that help you still achieve what you want to achieve um, and, and take some of that burden off? It's just too much sometimes. It's an incredible gift to be able to have someone help you. And a lot of, of women entrepreneurs or just you know, women in careers just aren't to the point where they can do that. And you're right. There's a, a recent study uh, came out where they, they wrote about you know, the percentage of, of time that women spend on household chores. It's lower than it's ever been compared to men, but it's still like four times more yeah, than guys. Yeah, still 60 to 70% of household and chores are, are done by, you know, by women versus, you know, their male counterparts. So it's, it's demanding. It, it is demanding. And when you get to places in your career where like, it's just not going to happen, that's one of the first things. Uh, that's that's most affordable to outsource, but I, I still see that resistance, and I also see a lot of people you know, who are listening going like, "Are you kidding? Like, I can't afford childcare, uh, much less you know having someone help me do the dishes or things like that." Um, but I think in, in all walks of life, just acknowledging, all right, you know, I need to find a job that allows me uh, to you know be a parent first and a job second, and I. Uh, when when you say that, this is why there's a hiring bias against women. But but here's the deal, just my experience as an employer, and I want to see if yours is the same. I, I build that in like Bulletproof has, uh, you know, uh, maternity benefits on par with a company much larger than ours. And like one of my senior executives missed an all day, uh, strategy meeting because her young daughter put a bean in her ear (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like, yep. Yeah. Kids do that. And, and my only question was, was it, well, at least was it a BPA free bead? Cause like, like, (laughs) Kids do this, like, like it doesn't matter. Things are going to happen. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, not un- unfortunately, but life happens, right? And I think for employers to think of their employees as one dimensional is really short sighted because, you know, when we leave work, you know, we go back to the life that is, you know, has so many different dimensions. And sometimes that bleeds into our daily lives. And so I think it is employer. If you can think of, of opportunities and ways to create an environment that allows people to bring their full selves to work, that recognizes that there are going to be curveballs, there's going to be sick days, there's going to be beads in the ear, that's really important. And I think you know it's hard if you're a small business or an independent contractor, or, you know whatever it may be, to necessarily have you know extraordinary you know maternity benefits. 
but you can do things like flex work. You can, you know, be be cognizant of the fact that someone may need to leave the office early to 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 do something or to run out to an appointment, um, to take care of a sick parent, whatever it may be. So it's really about the culture that you create. It's not always necessarily about. I think one one you know challenging thing is you see companies like Google and Netflix, you know, offering you know these crazy benefits, meals, transportation, housing, you know, schooling. You don't need to necessarily do those types of things to still create a culture that inspires and incents people to give them full to to be the the their full selves. And so I also always think you know, when, when you do allow people to, to live their life, um, in its fullest way at work, they're going to give you the most, you know, the women at at this company or the women that I know who have, have been allowed to, to navigate, you know, the unique dynamics of childcare and, and work are the ones who ultimately are the most loyal, invest the most, who are going to, you know, give you the greatest ROI on, on your time and your investment in them. So think about the small things that you can do to shape a culture or opportunities for, for anyone in your organization to navigate these really, you know, complex and daunting aspects of, of life. I actually uh, tell the the people in in my company, I'm like, look, uh, number one is your health. Like you have to take care of that first. And with my assistant who helps me schedule all of my crazy Tetris like calendar, I'm like, look, my health comes first because if, if you lose that, everything else sucks anyway. Uh, and number two, second is family. And number three is work. And I'm like, I'm like CEO and I'm saying this and I tell my people that too. And we have flex work and things like that. Um, at least for most jobs. And there's some jobs where like, well, you know, if your job is to make coffee, <laughs> <laughs> that isn't very flexible because people want to drink it like when it, but also, you know, if you need to swap a shift, you can swap a shift and things like that. How do you do this at, at a bigger company? Uh, you know, Forbes is much larger than Bulletproof. How do you build that flexibility and, and that where people are like willing to take care of themselves without without feeling like they're actually showing up as weak with their colleagues? It, it always starts with the top. I mean, the highest leaders in an organization always set the tone that trickles down to the rest of the organization. So I think when you see, you know, to your point, you're the CEO of a company. When you see someone like yourself who prioritizes family and gives people permission to do that. Um, that's so important to sort of recognize that no one wants to get sick in life. No one wants a sick family member. No one wants these, you know, these things that come up, but, but they do. And so when you're compassionate and you, you help support them in those moments, that's so important. And when you set that tone from the top, it's critical. So I think as leaders, you have to be really careful um, and cognizant of the message that you're sending. And I remember so distinctly when I had my first child, and I came back to work. Uh, I had to leave at five or five thirty because I had to to run home and, and let my caregiver go home. And for the first couple of weeks, I kind of would navigate a different route out of the office because I was <laughs> I had never in my in my entire life left the office to go home. You know, to go home at, at that hour. And I had this wake up call. I said, "What kind of tone am I setting?" It like I should talk about the fact that I have to leave at five thirty and that that's okay, and it doesn't mean that I'm not back online and it doesn't mean that I'm not working hard. But if I'm not creating the environment where people feel comfortable to do that or see, you know, a mother um, having to run out to her kids' checkups, whatever it may be, then it's also creating the environment where other people are are, are going to see that as as not okay. So you set the tone and you have to give people permission, and that always comes 
comes from the leaders. Um, and it's the simple acts day in and day out. You know, it can be policies and all that type of stuff, but it's the small things day in and day out that create culture and the set the tone. So really think about that when you're managing a team. It could be, you know, managing a company uh, because those things, you know, are what ultimately add up to, to what your company is. I had a, a friend who went to work for a big investment bank after business school. And she was telling me, she's like, Dave, most of the senior people, like, like we, they'll run out for a business dinner and they come back to the office and then they leave their reading glasses and a newspaper and the lights on in their mm-hmm. office and then they go home. So everyone thinks they're still yep. at the office yep. and that sort of like perspective of, of like guilt about like going to work out or going to eat quality lunch or, or to go and take care of your family. It, it seems like it, it's been built in since that 1950s housewife thing you talked about before. It, it's like, you know, if you're the breadwinner, you know, you've got to like be all in. And I'm seeing a shift in, in younger generations too with like, I actually want to have a life and I like my job and I'm, I'm loyal and I'm having fun, but like, I'm still going to go do uh, what I want to do. How have you seen that shift in, in Forbes over the last like 10, 20 years? I mean, it's, it's been a huge shift because I think there's that traditional mindset and especially in larger companies that it's about the hours that you put in. And I think, you know, that is fundamentally changing as is this notion of, you know, your job starts at nine and ends at five. Uh, even the notion that, that you work, you know, at one company your whole career for a decade or the, or even the, the notion that you have one job at one time. And so what's happening is given these rapid changes and the fact that they're happening quickly, it's forcing these repercussions throughout the entire culture of, of our organization. And it's really at the end of the day, you know, are you getting your job done and how do you measure the results and how do you, you know, create the opportunities for people to do the best work that they can. And if you know, you have extraordinary talent uh, and, you know, they have very full and complete lives. You need to celebrate and embrace that because they're going to bring their best self to work. And so this notion of putting the hours in, grinding it out, um, if you stay till 10 p.m., it makes you some sort of hero. It doesn't. It probably means you're just wasting time or working inefficiently or just, you know, keeping the lights on for the sake of of ego or perception versus reality. And so I think also it's really talking about what your goals are, um, what your objectives are and managing around those, not necessarily managing around how people use their time and whether they clock in at a certain hour. And, And don't get me wrong, you know, jobs can be demanding. It doesn't mean that you aren't, you know, necessarily working 10, 12 hours a day, but you have to give people a sense of ownership of their time. And we see that now with, you know, millennials and younger generations having the sense of autonomy of their time. And at the end of the day, they still have to get the job done. And if they're not, you know, like anybody, that's another story, but giving independence um, and ownership uh, is so important. It would be easy to say, well, you grew up in a family with means. uh, So, you know, you haven't personally faced like the level of, of challenge uh, that comes from, you know, I, I don't know I, if I, if I don't keep this minimum wage job, like I don't know how I'm going to make a rent kind of situation yet. You're, you're now working with women across all types of leadership and things like that. It has, have there been moments in your career when, when you've like really faced like serious, Oh my God, like I'm going to fail with a capital F here and I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, inherent, um, you know, to, to your career, right? It's, it's never going to be a smooth ascendancy to, to, you know, where you want to go. And you could never, 
you know, you could never do anything of impact in your life without facing major setbacks. Uh, and so there are those moments where you are put to the brink, where you are up at night. You have no idea if the decision is going to work out. You have no idea whether you're going to fail or succeed. And particularly, you know, in an organization where you have hundreds of employees relying on the livelihood of this company, right. you have an audience of millions around the world who look to our brand to be empowered with knowledge. That's a sense of responsibility that you can't take lightly. But at the same time, you can't remain stagnant. Um, you can't do the same things you've been doing before as you've done before and expect different or greater outcomes. So I will say I've been pushed to the edge. The one different dynamic is being in a family business is first, I think it, it, your, your failures are a little bit more public uh, or a lot yeah. more public. Um, <laughs> but I would say too, you know, you don't have the sense of freedom to necessarily talk about the crisis uh, or the failures in your life that other people have, because a lot of times people don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Um, you know, people don't know necessarily, you know, when you've been taken to the brink or, or when you're on the precipice of, of really, you know, tough decisions or where things can, can go either direction. And so it, it, it can be really lonely as well. Um, because you, you, you can't talk about that with, with peers. You can't talk about that as freely with friends, so you really then sort of create this very small network of um, people where you have that trust uh, and you can talk about these things that, that no one else, you know, knows um, or may ever know. I've heard this uh, kind of repeatedly. I've had a chance to interview some you know, billionaires and just very, very successful people and get to know them personally. And for a good number of them, they have this, this sense of like, they don't know who their friends are because like, like everyone I meet may want something from me and maybe they're nice to me, not because of me, but because I have the right name or because I have, you know, whatever assets. Um, how do you navigate that? It's something that you, you learn to navigate pretty quickly. I mean, even, even as kids, you, you, you pick up on that from people very quickly. And so it doesn't, it doesn't make you not trusting of other people, but you, you oftentimes know that you're going to be in a position where people are going to want something of you. Uh, you know, that's why sometimes networking is so challenging because, you know, people always want a great story about their business. They always want you to, to be able to do this or that, or they want Forbes to participate. And that is fantastic. But at the same time, you know, people sort of always coming to you and, and, and wanting something or even you perceiving that. And you have to really understand uh, who are who are people who are authentic, who share the same values, who are committed to things that you're doing. Who are, who are the people who are going to see you purely as a transaction? And what's always telling is when it's one and done, right? You do them a favor. You never hear from them again until they want something. And so you you quickly learn how to use your platforms or your influence or your network um, and, and, how to, and how to navigate that. Um, but it's also made me... It's been really challenging for me then to ask things of other people because, you know, we always live on the side of, of someone's always going to want something. Um, and, you know, that's that's hard. But but with it comes, you know, great opportunity as well, because it it, it opens you to, to meeting so many more people. So I wouldn't say, you know, it's a, a tough thing. It's just a, a unique dynamic to the relationships you build. And and you always have to know why why people are coming to you, and what they really want. Is it valuable and, and worthwhile and authentic to what you're doing? Because it can be hard to say no. I'm glad you, you said that part about hard to say no, because uh, this is something that affects um, all executives to a certain extent. Like you, you have to be willing to say no an awful lot because if you say yes all the time, you end up doing a bunch of crazy business things that are not good for you. And maybe for entrepreneurs like me, it's even harder because like my nature is to do all sorts of crazy new things to see the ones that are like going to be most effective. 
but there's also just from a, a societal perspective, women are quite often taught not to say no. Like, like you know, you, you don't want to be that way. Uh, just, just the stuff we hear growing up, right? So it's probably fair to say, not being a woman, that, that it's harder for the average woman to say no just to any random request than the average guy. And of course, everyone says no all the time. But there's a, at least in, from some very close friends that we've talked about this, and, and they say like, like you know, there's a, a sense of discomfort there. But when women move into positions of leadership, especially in your case where you know you have the Forbes name and you're in a position of leadership and people always want something. How did you learn to say no as often as you have to do it? It's, I mean, it's still something that I struggle with, right? Because sometimes it's hard to say no. It's uncomfortable. People are disappointed. And you have to get very comfortable, though, with the fact that not everyone's going to like you. And that's okay. You know, Ultimately, you want people to respect you. But even if they don't, that's okay, too. And so you have to, to step away from getting too caught up in what other people think about you. You know, they may be annoyed or disappointed, but but that's okay. So you have to be comfortable in the decisions that you make, that you're making them for a good reason, right? It's not because you don't want to help people. It's not because, you know, you're mean or you don't like someone. Sometimes you have to say no because you just can't do it or the opportunity isn't available, whatever it can be. So you you can't feel guilty saying no. Um, also, I think as sometimes as as women and girls are taught up to be people pleasers, you want everyone to feel good. And that's just, that's not life. So be comfortable with your nose uh, and really be comfortable in, in why you're making that decision and know, know the reasons behind it, because that also validates and gives you permission to be able to walk away from a situation that doesn't benefit anybody. What advice would you have for a person who says yes too often, whether they're a woman or a man? Like, how do they learn that feel comfortable saying no? Uh, to me, you know, the way that, that I have to, at least personally, the way that, that I do it is I go back to the end of the day at the end of the day and I say, what do I hope to accomplish? What's a good use of my time? What's a good use of, of the resources that we have? And if I'm wasting those assets away, then I am undermining not just my ability to be successful, but the ability of our organization or, or the work that we're doing to achieve its highest outcome. So if you're leading with a yes, that means that that you're, you know, always leading with a yes, that means that that you know, you're not strategically prioritizing the resources that you have. So for me, sometimes when you go back to the fundamentals of why you're doing something, as I said, it gives you permission to say no more. So if you're saying yes, it means you're taking sometimes the easy way. You're you're doing the easy thing that will ultimately cost you opportunity later. Do you say no enough to your kids? I know that's actually it's, it's, I, it's funny that you say that. Um, so I have a, a, a two young boys. Uh, they just turned one and three uh, last week. And uh, so the three-year-old is, you know, finding his sense of an independence. And, you know, what I found is that it's a really tough balance because saying no is hard. It's hard, at least at this age, in the sense that it comes with tears and tantrums and just a whole lot of drama. And so for me, I give in because it's the easiest path. Uh, you know, a great example of it, my three-year-old just wants to sleep in our bed every single night. Um, <laughs> he is like a nighttime ninja where he finds every way to get out of bed and into our bed without us finding out. You know, sometimes I'm just too exhausted to carry him the five times back to his room. And so it's, it's a fine balance with kids. Uh, but again, you, you, you have to just realize sometimes the easy shortcuts are going to undermine and create more work for you in the long run. Uh, and so you just have to learn not to give in. Uh, but sometimes you're just so tired. It's, it's, a, it's never perfect. 
you can maybe tell from from you know my reaction to this that that I yeah was up um, for several hours last night with the kids, uh, you know. But it's it's you know it's it's never it's never it's always messy. It's never going to be simple. I'm glad you said that. And people build this picture of you know well known people uh, like you. I'm just you know that you have like like some life where oh like there must be like 13 night nannies. Oh and, my gosh! You know, I mean I. <laughs> bring them on. No, uh, no, but it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, I grew up, for example, I'm one of five kids. We never had a full-time nanny. You know, my mother was a stay-at-home mom. I so valued um, the time that she put in with, with us and, and just the, the sense of home that she created. And so for me, you know, I feel so extraordinarily lucky that we have, you know, uh, a great nanny um, who sort of gives love to my children in, 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 a, in a different way than we could. But at the end of the day, you know, we're still a family. So when I come home from work, you know, she goes home and we're in the slog of bedtime, bath, books, you know, feeding, bottles, cleaning, making breakfast the next morning. Um, because to me, that's, you know, in the craziness is also the joy. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's hard work, but I'm incredibly lucky because, you know, I, I, you know, I can have flexibility in my schedule and I've, I've, you know, great family and resources, but, uh, but it's in those moments that, you know, that, that really cement who you, who you are as a unit. It's uh, well, thank you for saying that because parenting is, is a great equalizer and there are a few successful and some not successful people who just completely like shirk their, their responsibilities as parents and their kids usually pay the price for that. Uh, in fact, it may be more common among people with means, um, but I, I don't really have good data on that. It just it seems like I've seen a few really big examples, but maybe they're just in the media. <laughs> and then uh, the rest of the time, it doesn't matter what your walk in life. You know, kids wake up in the middle of the night, and either you're there or you're not there. And and so um, I'm I'm happy you just help people understand that doesn't change no matter where you are in life. Well, and I, and I think the one thing that you, you know, you can maybe, you know, if you have the resources, find someone to help take off certain, you know, aspects of your life, um, you know, time-wise, like, you know, laundry or, or cleaning, or, you know, if you do have, are fortunate to have those resources, but I, you know, I never want to fully, you know, outsource parenting, right? Um, it's the most extraordinary gift that you can have in your life. Um, and you yeah. never get that time back. And so for me, you know, what, what you invest in it, you know, you get out, um, you know, exponential ways and yes, you know, you're exhausted and it's hard work and, and all the things that we, you know, you always say about parenting, but that's just part of the gig, right? Um, I, I was in a, a, you know, my son's class a couple of weeks ago and it was their spring break and, and the parents were talking about where they were going and, and everyone's has choice to make their own decisions, but they were saying that they had to bring their, you know, their nanny on vacation with them. Otherwise it wouldn't be a vacation. You know, it just reminded me that, parenting changes things. Um, and you know, when you commit to it, you know, I committed to it fully and that's the good, the bad, the ugly recognizing again, that, that we have great support, but you know, that's the fun part too. Uh, so for me, I was happy to go on vacation with, with my kids, even though it was, it felt anything like a restful vacation, but it was, it's us. What else are you doing to make sure that your kids grow up like, without the, the silver spoon effect, you know, or kind of everything's handed to them, you know, you're from a well-known family, et cetera, et cetera. Like, how do you teach them to be humble and serving and, and things like that? Well, I think it's the same way that we were brought up. We were extraordinarily fortunate that we didn't have to worry about things like, you know, college tuition, that we had choice in education and access to opportunity. But that doesn't mean that you can get a free ride in life. Uh, with that, 
you know, comes, I think, a sense of responsibility to think about how you want to have impact on the world. Um, and, and, you know, it was, it was never a question of, of, if you worked hard, it was a question of what you were going to work hard in, um, whether it be the chores that we had, um, whether it be the the jobs that we got, you know, the summer jobs that we got. Um, it was about the values of knowing that that you know it's always about hard work um, and committing yourself to to the fullest, and that you know just because uh, you have access to to opportunities and you're very fortunate doesn't mean that that you get to, to shirk off any, any responsibilities. You, you know, my parents were hard workers. And again, just in business, like in parenting, it sets the tone at the top. So we had chores, work hard, um, you know, be good kids, be nice to people. And, and, you know, recognize that life is messy and complicated and you have to be empathetic uh, to people around you and just learn to be a good person. So it always comes from role modeling. Uh, and so the tone that you set is the tone that your kids are going to pick up. I made the mistake. I, I pretty much decided a while ago that like if it doesn't give me energy, and you know bring me joy, I'm going to do my best to not do it. <laughs> it's not that I don't work out. I work my ass off, right? But I'm explaining this to the kids. You know, like like if if I have the opportunity, like I'm going to spend time you know, with you or with with mommy or you know working, you know, and 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 providing value for people and, and things like that. Which means I actually don't want to do. I don't want to take the dishes out of the dishwasher. And that's why it's your job, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so they're a little older than yours. You know, my, my son's he was maybe six when we had this conversation. And, and he says, after about two months, he goes, Daddy, goes, taking the dishes out of the dishwasher doesn't bring me joy. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. All right. Like, gotcha. Yeah, they, they're, <laughs> We're going to have a conversation. Yeah, so, they're, 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 good, they're good negotiators that way. They know how to throw it back at you. They sure are. And I, and I said, all right, Alan, here's the, here's the deal. So if you can find a way to add more value than taking the dishes out of the dishwasher, you don't have to do it anymore. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, I don't know. Find another chore that's even harder and find a way to do that. And maybe one that's more fun. I said, but until then, you don't have the skills or the knowledge to not do the dishes. And that's the, that's the secret here. So you have to work hard on it. And I think he's still working on ways to not do it. Uh, which is uh, which is awesome. So I'm really hopeful that at some point he finds a way to outsource emptying the dishwasher, and I'll support him doing that. You know, he wants to run our little farm stand, and uh, we got two pigs, uh, mostly so my kids can feed them <laughs> twice a day because that's they such eat, an annoying and chore. And they eat everything. And yeah, we used to have pigs. <laughs> they they uh, they're they're garbage disposals. Um, but but I but I think that's great though because you have to. I think, you know, life is full of things that you don't want to do. And, um, you know, there's the adult equivalent of in work of, you know, emptying the dishwasher or literally, literally emptying the dishwasher. And I think it's really important to understand that life isn't always going to be fun, right? If you create the expectation that you're always going to be happy and that things always have to be great or that if they're not, then something's wrong, it's your you know, you're creating this, these false expectations for your kids and for yourself. You're going to have to do yeah. things that you want to, don't want to do. It's going to be hard work. And life is, is not always going to be easy. And that's okay. Uh, you have to get comfortable with that um, and be realistic. And so I think sometimes we set these expectations that you always have to be happy and find your passion. And, and those are all important things. But with that, you know, comes these moments of just getting the job done and slogging it out and getting through the day. And it's, you know, it's, it's never simple. Um, but you know, you have to roll up your sleeves and be willing to jump in and, and embrace it fully. 
Now, you've had the opportunity on your own show to interview a lot of people about uh, about success. And I might get the name of your of your show wrong there. It's something really like Moira Forbes on success or something. What, what's the name Six, of it? Success with Moira Forbes. You, you were close. You were close. You, <laughs> I was you really get close. like an A- on that. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what... What have you learned that you didn't expect to learn from interviewing a lot of like very highly successful people? You know, I think it was less about what I didn't expect to learn. So it was less about these outlier things that that um, around leadership, and it was more surprising and affirming to see the commonalities and the qualities uh, that are common amongst people who have achieved such uncommon success. And on paper, you know, when you talk about these, these qualities, they seem really simple or easy, but it's this practice time and time again, it's this commitment and dedication uh, to, to certain things. So for me, it was time and time again, seeing certain threads emerge. Um, and, uh, and you, you know, we talk about them a lot. Um, you know, one, you know, time and time again was, you know, this, this conversation on resilience and, and grit, which is a very popular word right now that, um, you know, these women constantly faced, you know, roadblocks and hurdles and walls, and they found, you know, continuous ways to get around it, that they didn't take no for an answer, that they, you know, found ways to pick themselves um, up off the ground. And I always think that sort of resilience is like a muscle, you know, the more you use it, the more that, that you learn, um, how to exercise, um, um, you know, those, those experiences, the better. So I think that's sort of something that is this, this equalizer amongst these, these women, you know, obviously there's things like, you know, there's no avoiding sacrifice, um, and, and the like, but I would say that concept of resilience and that decision to keep moving forward and to bend versus break in the face of, of life's biggest obstacles is, you know, is critical. And then the other thing, that I think personally was really important to me was the fact that I saw these women as leaders who who had to be very authentic to who they were. And uh, time and time again, I think you know we talk about leaders and the qualities that they can ha- they they have, and it could be charisma, whatever it is. And you say, if I'm not like them, I I can't have ambitious goals. And you have to get comfortable with you know your your you have your own set of strengths and they may be different, but you have to be authentic to, to, to who you are um, because, you know, that's where your greatest power lies. So if you try, try and spend your all your time trying to imitate the behaviors of someone else or what you think you you should be or how you think you should, should act, that's, you know, that's not going to help anyone. And the reason why it was so you know, important for me in my career is growing up in a family business, you're constantly compared to the people before you. And so, you know, I had, you know, my grandfather, who was this incredibly charismatic figure who would hot air balloon around the world and motorcycle, and I couldn't even parallel park a car. You know, I had my, uh, <laughs> you know, my father who very different than his father, but who is sort of this economic mind, um, a policy thinker, ran for political office, you know, and I failed Econ 101. And I was like, I'm, I'm not like him. And so I saw these two people before me. And in no way did I feel like, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I was a woman, I felt that, that my skill sets were very different. And I kept thinking of, of these things that made me who I am as a liability. And it was only as I progressed throughout my career to realize, you know, I, you know, those 
those things I thought were liabilities actually are the things that make me unique, where my greatest power lies, and get comfortable with those and stop trying to pretend that you're someone else and own it, own it and be like the superhero of those qualities and just, you know, be comfortable with it uh, and, and run with it versus trying to avoid it at all costs. And that was a really liberating and important thing for me. So I think that's also one one thing that for me personally, seeing that in so many extraordinary leaders, you know, validated or, or really encouraged me and pushed me to, to be more authentic in who I was uh, in my career and in my life. So you, you heard different stories or different aspects of authenticity and a lot about resilience have been like the, the two big call outs from that. The, the two big call outs that, that, that stuck with me and it's that, again, that ability to bend and not break and recognizing that, that failure, you know, is never final. You know, the thing that you fear most when something happens is really not the worst thing that, that's going to happen to you in your life or not the worst thing that could happen. And, and very rarely does the worst thing you think can happen actually happen. And when it does, I, I saw these women constantly moving forward, but always stretching themselves outside their comfort zone. Um, and uh, I think, you know, doing that is, is part and parcel with the willingness to know that you're going to fall flat on your face or you're going to hit a roadblock and keep moving forward. And, um, and so it's, it's also just inspired me in my career to push myself, you know, beyond what I feel comfortable doing or, or to take risks that I maybe was more hesitant to take because, you know, if you see other people before you having done it in all very, in very different ways, it, it it just gives you, you know, a sense that, that, that you can do it too. If someone came to you tomorrow, Maura, and said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what three pieces of advice would you offer them? Well, first, I don't think you can perform well at everything, you know, that you are as a human being. So I would say sort of get, and I think that's something that's also sort of to our point earlier, something that women experience is you're not going to be great at everything, right? Um, and and so, you know, first, I, I always say you have to ruthlessly prioritize what are the most important things in your life right now? Um, and each day, each week, each month, how does your time and the way that you allocated your energy align with those goals? It's never going to be perfect. Again, you have to give up on being perfect. But, you know, did did you, you know, if you think of your life as a, as a pie, you know, as your time as, as a pie, you know, do the, the, the pieces and how you allocate your time and energy did a match up to what your goals and your priorities are. So for me, if my priorities are, family, you know, work, uh, and, and myself, because I think self-care is so important. I had to basically let go of, of things like, you know, my social life is not that great right now, you know, and you just have to prioritize and say no. So that's one thing, um, that's so, so critical. Uh, second thing is find what gives you energy. And, and, you know, this is, this is the world that you live in, but I always have to ask myself, what depletes my energy and what gives me energy? And not just necessarily sort of the things I do. Yes, you know, you take moments out to pause or exercise or the food that you eat, but what are things in my day-to-day life that fuel me, that spark that curiosity, that create that moment that you want to you want to go further, that that really inspire you? And what are the things that are, you know, energy vampires and try and get rid of those? So uh, that's, you know, so important. And the last thing I would say is attitude. You know, your attitude is everything in life. You can wake up every day. You wake up every day and and how you choose to approach that day is the only thing that you can control. And attitude is also the greatest equalizer, right? Because it's it's one thing, you know, that we all have have the power to um 
to, to really focus on and to, to choose how we approach the things that we want to approach in our life. So you could choose how you see things. You could choose how you approach your obstacles and how you react to them. And so for me, you know, attitude is everything. It's, it's essential, uh, uh, to what I do and how I live my life and, and how I try and, and, and just stay, stay positive. And again, none of this is ever going to be perfect. So, um, so it's attitude, ruthlessly prioritizing and finding things that, that give me energy and give me joy. That's a, a powerful set of answers. Maura, you're working on a women's summit uh, in New York on June 18th. What are you doing with that? And, and why did you decide to create a women's summit? We've had a huge platform in the women's space, um, creating content dedicated to empowering women to succeed in business um, in all aspects of their lives. And what we found is there's such a, a need and want to be able to come together with other other women, other leaders who are doing very, very different things, but but share similar missions and are approaching them from different vantage points. And so the summit, first and foremost, is an opportunity to create community and to create this extraordinary knowledge exchange. And live events are such a powerful way to do that, uh, first and foremost. And I think also, you know, what makes, makes the summit, uh, I think, our most important yet is the past 18 months have represented this watershed moment for women in this country with allegations of dis- discrimination and abuse coming to the surface in ways that we knew existed, but but weren't talked about and addressed uh, and recognized in a, in a prevalent way. So now that these things have come to the surface, I think it's this moment of reckoning in terms of what's next. So rather than talking about the challenges and the statistics that we all know are so bleak, how do we create actionable solutions, both small things and, and big things that can move the needle in fundamental ways to create opportunities for women today and for future generations of women to emerge? Awesome. Where can people find out more about both your show about success and about your new women's summit? Is there a link they can go to? There's a link. And and, uh, and if you go to Forbes.com, uh, always great content, but also it's uh, a portal to, to be able to see the work that we're doing. And also what's fantastic now is just the power of social media. So uh, I always encourage people to connect with me on, on LinkedIn or Twitter and, and the Forbes communities as well, because it's really fun to have these conversations with people whose perspectives can add value to what we're doing, inform us, and help us shape the conversations that are really important uh, uh, to leaders today, regardless of what stage they are in their careers. Well, I'm now following you on uh, on Instagram. I realized I hadn't done that yet. There we go. I just followed you. I'm your 3,033rd follower. Woohoo! hoo <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, I look forward to following you as, as well. Um, and uh, yeah. It's, uh, but it, but it's fun because you get to connect with different dimensions of people's lives. And, and I love it, it. It's really cool. And just, if you're listening to this, uh, it, this is the only time in history that I've ever known where it's possible to get at least sometimes a real look at what successful people do, because unless you have like a carefully sculpted social media team controlling every post, uh, and some people do that, but most of the time you'll find you can actually like see what life is really like for someone that you like see on TV or you hear about somewhere because like that's what social media does. And I, I think it's kind of enlightening because of what you find and, and what I found over the last few years of interviewing a bunch of people and, and just in my growth with Bulletproof is that it's amazing how many real people there are out there. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. No, and, I, and I think that's just a, you, you have to always then, speaking of biases, that you, you know, you go into these, you know, and sometimes in, in certain people that you know, and you have a set of expectations. And so you're surprised when they don't, you know, match those expectations. And oftentimes they're not great expectations. Sometimes public figures, you know, you, you think the worst and you're surprised that they're, you know, quote unquote real people. But I do love, you know, that there's windows into to everyone's lives because, you know, we all have these shared experiences and they may be, you know, different or, 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 uh, you know, have unique aspects to them. But at the end of the day, you know, we're, you know, we, we all are people who, who, you know, want to have impact who want to, you know, get the most out of our lives. And it's nice when you can see those windows and also realize that nobody's life is perfect. Right. And so that's the one thing I will say that sometimes, you know, Instagram, is the downfall of Instagram is sometimes people feel so much pressure to make their lives look perfect. Um, that, uh, and, and, you know, and, and so fantastic. Um, I think it's, again, that, that question of authenticity, when you, you have the chance to pull back the curtain and, um, see how the sausage gets made, which is just life. Um, that's when you can make true connections and that's when you can have the most fun. Beautiful. So be careful if someone looks like they're having too much fun and their life is too perfect because, um, you know, cause it never is never is. Awesome. Maura, thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. Well, thank you. And I I look forward to um, seeing your Instagram feed now. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Head on over to uh, Maura's page on the Forbes.com site and check out the Women's Summit if that's of interest to you. Or go to bulletproof.com slash iTunes and leave a review of this episode or just the show in general. I always appreciate knowing how I'm doing. So thank you. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. 
This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.